It's time that you know your rights, period. Hey, it's been a while. Welcome back to another episode of the Brown Woman Health Podcast. And in today's episode, we're speaking to you in the aftermath of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, a precedent that takes back women's rights for almost about 50 years. Now, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, is the time to educate yourself on reproductive health. So from period poverty and shame to high prevalence of reproductive disorders, today we have student Dr. Pulvi Musker. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my name is Pallavi. I'm a fourth year medical student at the Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine. Um, I'm currently doing my last year of clinical rotation, so my life is pretty exciting. I'm planning on applying to family medicine as my residency program and then hopefully doing a fellowship in women's health afterwards. That's exciting. So why do you want to work in women's health? Um, so I come from a family of guys. I'm the firstborn girl in my family. And so women, women's health. They really hold a soft spot in my heart. Um, I think as women, we often take care of everyone but ourselves. We end up neglecting ourselves, neglecting our health, whether that be mental health or physical health. And for me as a healthcare provider, um, working in the field of women's health, my goal really is to empower my patients to make the best health decisions that they can about their own bodies. And for me to guide them into making those decisions with full patient autonomy. All right. Yeah. And I think that's like an, a, a great goal to have when it comes to medicine and really inspiring as well. And I need, know a huge part of um, like working in women's health is the concept of period poverty. So would you like to talk a little bit more about that? And I know, especially being from a South Asian background, um, that's like a huge um, problem that occurs like back in South Asia and um, maybe even here. So do you, do yeah. you have a problem that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I've done most of my rotations in the south side of Chicago, especially my OB-GYN rotation, and I witnessed a lot of period poverty over there. But also, you know, being from a South Asian background, when I was doing more research about the girls and the women in South Asia and what products they have access to or don't have access to, I mean, these statistics are insane. About 66% of girls across all of South Asia, they don't know anything about menstruation to get their before they get their first period. So let alone, you know, having access or not having access to products, they don't even know what's happening with their own body. Right. Yeah. And and it's just insane to me that, you know, these women and girls, we make up half of the world's population. Right. And in a region as great as South Asia, when they, you know, just don't know what's happening with their own bodies. And The reason that I was so astonished by this is because living in the U.S. and growing up in the U.S., you know, in my um, upbringing, when I was in school, we got the talk in the lecture when I was in the fifth grade about what to expect when you get your first period and, you know, basically how your body is going to change through puberty. So I knew what was going to happen because that education was given to me via my school system. Mm -hmm. And along with that, I also had access to products growing up. And, you know, one fourth of the world's adolescents live in South Asia and half of those people are people who menstruate. But there's such a drastic difference in the number of people that have access to the products, whether it be pads or tampons or menstrual cups that can, you know, really ensure that they have healthy and safe periods. 
Mm-hmm. It's just crazy. India has a population of over 1 billion people, but about 30% of Indians who menstruate, they don't have access to clean and safe products like pads or tampons. Right. Could you talk a little bit more on like why it's so important to have, um, you know, hygienic menstrual products? Because I know it's also uh, a statistic out there that, um, sure. yeah, that some women and girls use um cloth at their homes as pads and that's not really good idea so could you can you expand more on that yeah yeah 100 percent um there's actually a really nice journal that i follow it's called the global journal of health science they recently published a study that found that about 66 percent of women and girls who use cloth pads whether that be um like towels from their home bed sheets you know basically things that aren't marketed and safe sanitary pads or tampons, that they use these for period products, um, 66% of these people suffer from urogenital infections. And this is something that can essentially be prevented if everyone who menstruates has access to clean and safe hygienic products. And this also plays in part with um, women, girls not going to school because they're on their periods. You know, they're missing out on school, which means they fall behind, their grades start dropping, and then they don't graduate. It's a whole cycle of things that is basically boils down to what you are accessible for um, product-wise and education-wise. Yeah. And going off of education, I know um, something that we talked about before the podcast and discussed was sexual health education. So um, especially in the South Asian society, do you want to talk a little bit more about that side of health education? Sure. I think just from what I've experienced, you know, growing up in a predominantly Caucasian environment, um, I'm from central Illinois, that I've noticed that within the South Asian community, there's such a stigma against sexual education. And I think sex in general, with the population of South Asia being so high, you know, you would think people would talk about it. Yeah, no. Um, And uh, do you ever like have that sort of, I know the term is the talk about that. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have that? No, no, I didn't. Not at home. Absolutely not. You know, like I said before, what I knew to expect for my first period and how to use a pad or how to use a tampon that came from school. And I'm not saying that it's my parents' fault or it's their parents' fault for not teaching them. You know, I have probably the best parents in the world. I love them so much. But it's just this environment that they were raised in where sex and sexual health education is stigmatized. Mm -hmm. And they don't really have the education themselves because regardless of it not being taught at home, it wasn't taught in school. So there's no source to learn this, to pass it on to your own kids. Yeah, that was really alarming for me. And I think something that really struck out the most is before this podcast, we were looking at some facts. And um, in a United Nations report, before the age of 18, it states that in India, about 20% of women give birth, which is crazy. Um, And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, these statistics, I... I seriously can't. We're in 2022 and I can't believe the numbers that I'm seeing and the numbers that I'm hearing. It's just absolutely insane, which also goes to show the privilege that we have living yeah. in a developed country where we don't see numbers like this, you know? Yeah. Um, and this definitely, it's directly related to the lack of sexual health education. Right. Um, living in the U.S., growing up in the U.S., I know that if you have sex without protection, that you have a very, very high chance of getting pregnant. That doesn't necessarily mean that, oh, you should never have sex until you want to have a baby. 
That yeah. just means that you need to be informed on what options you have for birth control and protection in general. Uh, right. And just condoms isn't enough. And just to, as a caveat, I'm not giving out actual medical advice. If you, as a listener, um, need medical advice, always, always consult your um, physician or your healthcare provider. Um, I think like that, that, that's really helpful. And I, um, something, a follow-up question I had to that is um, from your knowledge and from your research, do you know why there is a decreased um, usage of contraceptives in South Asia? Um, I know you mentioned health education. I think another thing could be socioeconomic status. Um, is that sure. true? Sure. Yeah. There was actually a study that I came across. Um, it was published in a database called Ovid. It just came out in the middle of May. They broke down four different countries in South Asia, in India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Nepal. Um, and they basically found out that the number one reason why in India there's decreased contraceptive use is because of poor economic status. A lot of rural families um, and even urban families, they just don't have the economic means of procuring these products, let alone whether or not they have the education. Bangladesh wise, um, their number one is living in a rural area. And so these um, people, women, children, men, boys, you know, when they don't live next to an area that has a lot of these products on hand, it's difficult for them to get access to contraception. Pakistan, um, their number one was illiteracy, which also, you know, plays into the sexual health education, contraceptive use education. Um, Nepal was unemployment, which I think is pretty much related to poor economic status as is with India. Um, and, you know, going back to the overall sexual health education, I think there's also this mentality of you should never talk about sex. You should never see sex. It's just viewed as a shame or like an act of shame that only people who are married should do, which is not the case at all. People all around the world do it. So, so we talked a lot about um, period poverty and the lack of sexual education, especially uh, within the South Asian community. And I think these are all really important topics. Um, and so I'm going to jump here a little bit. Roe v. Wade recently happened, um, the, yeah. the overturning of it. So do you want to talk a little bit more about what that means um, yeah. as a woman, as well as what that means for someone who wants to work in women's health in the Midwest? Sure, sure, definitely. Um, yeah, it came as a huge shock when I saw that on my phone. Um, I honestly didn't even know what to think or what to say when I first saw it. Right. On my news update. But aside from, you know, elective abortions for people who are pregnant, who don't wish to carry out a pregnancy, regardless of what that reason is, it's not for us to judge. It's for us to support. Right. Healthcare providers and as people across this country. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, aside from that, I'm also very worried about people who are pregnant, people who want to have kids who want to give birth and suffer miscarriages which another, sorry, another term for a miscarriage is a spontaneous abortion. And there's a type of miscarriage or a spontaneous abortion that doesn't get expelled out of your body. So your fetus essentially is non-viable. It's not living anymore, but the fetus doesn't leave your body. And so the treatment for that is to perform a medical abortion to expel the fetus out of the body. Okay. You know, there's nothing that 
the mom did that would have caused this. There's nothing that the physician did that would have caused this. It just happens. And it's unfortunate. And that's also why I like being in the field of medicine is to provide care for people who are in their most vulnerable spots to really help them get through this. And, you know, rulings like this can affect health outcomes for these potential moms, because if you don't remove this aborted pregnancy from the uterus, the person carrying the fetus can die. And it's the same thing with an ectopic pregnancy. So the medical definition of ectopic pregnancy is an implanted zygote somewhere that's not within the uterus. So if the zygote is implanted somewhere outside of the uterus, it is automatically deemed as a non-viable pregnancy. Um, that can be in the fallopian tubes, that can be in the ovaries, wherever. Most, mostly it's in the fallopian tubes, but the point is that it's outside of the uterus. And if these ectopic pregnancies burst, there's such a drastic chance for the person carrying the ectopic pregnancy to die. So that's why the second this is detected on an ultrasound or um, any type of imaging, you know, you immediately rush to the operating room to take this pregnancy out to save the mom's life. Those are really important procedures. And I know it affects a good portion of people aspiring to work in women's health in states that have outlaw or have really strict laws now uh, against abortion. So it really affects the training of a lot right. of medical professionals. Now, something else that we also wanted to discuss in this podcast was um, reproductive and endocrine conditions among South Asian females. And so we talked a little bit now about abortion rights, um, but along those lines, uh, what are some other things that you've seen with women in the South Asian community, like common, um, you know, like uh, reproductive or endocrine conditions? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I see this in a lot of my friends and family members and just throughout my medical training so far, um, PCOS is probably one of the most common conditions among South Asian females. And that stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Basically means you just have a lot of cysts on your ovaries. Mm -hmm. Um, The direct cause of this is considered to be a two-hit hypothesis So it's part genetic, part environmental. I don't really understand the full pathophys mechanism. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, But diagnosing PCOS. So we go by three things called the Rotterdam Rotterdam criteria. The first thing we see is decreased or absent ovulation. So the decreased ovulation is termed oligoovulation. And absent ovulation is termed anovulation. So you'll see the term anovulation a lot just because more people who have PCOS don't ovulate at all, but it can be one of the two. Okay. Second criteria would be evidence of hyperandrogenism, which basically means you have an overload of testosterone where your testosterone level should be decreased as genetically female. And this causes things like hirsutism, which means increased hair growth in places that societally we would expect males to have. So upper chin, or sorry, chin, upper lip, um, sideburns, things like that. It's Uh kind of ironic because I feel like South Asian females in general have that just based on our genes. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's definitely increase in PCOS. And then the third thing, which is kind of redundant, is seeing lots of cysts on your ovaries on an ultrasound. That's just like a baseline criteria. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but there's also a lot of other associated symptoms that aren't really diagnostic factors. So they can be present, but they don't have to be in order for the person to have PCOS. And these are in the more of what we call comorbidities. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, taking care of the underlying problem, which is the PCOS, will also help to alleviate these other symptoms. So it's things like obesity, insulin resistance, which can lead to type 2 diabetes, sleep apnea, which is a result of the obesity for the most part. Um, when people have larger than average neck circumferences, it kind of compresses on your vocal cords and compresses on your throat. So you don't really get enough oxygen to your brain when you're asleep. Yeah. Um, you can have dysregulation of your lipids. So increased fat deposits in your body, you can have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which pretty much means that your liver presents as if you were an alcoholic. Uh-huh. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of things that people don't really think about when they, when it comes to PCOS, like all of those comorbidity and um, associated symptoms that I think is also, it's just as important to look at that when you look at PCOS in general and we see, you know, what is the South Asian diet like? How can that be contributing to increasing, you know, obesity or insulin resistance? Right. Um, what is our sleep like? Uh-huh. You know, things like that. Are we as South Asians, do we have a higher risk of diabetes in general, just because I feel like we eat a lot of sugar in our diet with the jalebis and the gazubatlis and gulab jamun and everything, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think this is all really important. And so that we talked a little bit about PCOS, but what are the, like the treatments available um, and what, what do you think works most in the South Asian community? Sure. Um, so the first line treatment for PCOS, regardless of what part of the globe you come from, is oral contraceptives. So birth control or what we like to call the pill. Um, this is the first line because PCOS is basically a hormonal imbalance. And right. so adding hormones which comes in the form of the pill, it regulates your symptoms. And in addition to that, it also protects your endometrial lining from hyperplasia. And that basically means when you have PCOS, um, this is another associated condition, that your endometrial lining, which is a thing that you shed when you have a period, this proliferates, it grows and it grows and it grows. And usually we see this in postmenopausal females. Uh Um, It's more common in in that demographic, but here we see it in younger individuals who have PCOS and this skyrockets your rate for endometrial cancer. Uh Um, And this is all basically caused by the female not ovulating. So this chronic anovulation is leading to this endometrial hyperplasia or overgrowth. Mm -hmm. And adding the oral contraceptives, you know, adding the pills, will basically help to re-regulate this hormonal imbalance. So it helps with your PCOS symptoms and it's a cancer protectant. So it's, it's super important. And I know um, now that we're on the topic that um, oral contraception access is decreasing. Yeah, I think um, especially after this ruling came out from Ruby Wade, we see this trend that... Um, you know, in the news, more and more people are trying to regulate access to birth control, access to IUDs, access to like all these different things, just because, well, we had one hit, you know, what's to stop them from coming after everything else. And when we relate this back to PCOS, and especially this like sexual health stigma that we see in South Asian communities, um, I feel like that's why a lot of South Asian females don't really, you know, 
outwardly seek help for the PCOS because right. if they do, you know, the first line treatment, like I said, is oral contraception. And then you're going to come home to a family that's not open to that because the only thing that they think of when you say that is birth control. Yeah. But the pill has so many uses. I mean, it can treat acne problems. It can treat PCOS. It can, it treats everything under the sun, I feel like. Um, But that just basically ties back into how we as, you know, millennials, Gen Z need to increase the conversations in sexual health and reinforce that it's not a stigma that everybody should be talking about it because this affects half of the world's population. Yeah. And going off of that too, um, could you maybe talk a little bit more about the most common birth controls that are out there and how um, we can access them? Sure, sure. Um, So the most common that you see is this OCP, which is the oral contraceptive. Um, it's a pill, so it's super easy to be prescribed. It's easy to be distributed. There's also lots of websites, organizations that, you know, bypass, um, any sort of insurance issue for people that don't have insurance or for people that have insurance, but won't cover birth control. Yeah. Um, It can be delivered straight to your house. I don't know the exact implications of that, but I've seen ads for it everywhere. Uh Um, those options are great. The problem is that they're not the most effective because they have to be taken religiously. If you miss even one dose, it can throw the whole cycle off. Uh Um, That's not going to play as much of an effect as when you're treating PCOS versus when you're preventing pregnancy. Right. So preventing pregnancy wise, the most effective would be your IUDs. So intrauterine device. Um, Copper IUD is actually better than the plan B pill that you can get for like $50 at CVS. Uh-huh. Um, and then the other type of IUD is a hormonal IUD. So it's uh-huh. not copper. Um, that actually, aside from trying to prevent a pregnancy, that's actually one of the treatments for girls and women who have super, super um, heavy periods, periods that where they bleed so much, they become anemic because yeah. it decreases your endometrial lining. Uh-huh. And so it causes you to bleed less. Um, another type of birth control is the Nexplanon implant. That's also pretty effective on um, both, you know, the IUDs and the Nexplanon. They're over 99% effective. And um, one resource that I like to tell people, my classmates and my patients too, um, is the Planned Parenthood website. They have lots of links, lots of good information. They have statistics on everything. Um, I would definitely check them out. And they also have good information about different um, sites where you can access outpatient abortions or you can access birth control. Um, It'll work with your health insurance. You know, they have everything. Yeah. No, I think that's really helpful. And that's a really important link and resource. So thanks for sharing that with us as well. Um, And I know another part of it is um, seeking a provider when it comes to birth control. So um, what is something or what are some criteria that you would recommend for patients to look for when seeking a provider? Sure. So for me personally, just the experiences that I've had in talking to my patients, the patients that I've had that I've seen over the past year, year and a half, um, I think one of the most important things to take in mind when you're looking for a provider is to seek someone who's culturally competent or someone who's willing to learn about different cultures and how these cultures affect your health outcomes. 
uh-huh. especially tying back with, you know, everything we've talked about uh-huh. today, um, knowing that your patient is of South Asian descent and maybe um, their family isn't as accepting of them starting birth control. You know, you could counsel them on how to break the news to their parents because in time, they're going to have to have that conversation. It's not your jurisdiction as a provider to tell the patient's parents, but you can easily offer a lending helping hand to make your patient feel more comfortable in your office. Yeah. I think it's also important to, you know, sit and take time to listen to your patient's concerns. So as a patient, when you're looking for a provider, it's easy to get an appointment, but then your provider sees you for five minutes and walks out the door. For me, you know, as a patient and as a healthcare provider, I don't really think you're doing your patients justice when you just see them as a number and check them off a list. It's a lot easier said than done, but as a patient, it's really valuable to have someone who will sit there, take the time to listen to your concerns, involve you in the decision-making process, because the point of being a healthcare provider is not just to tell you what to do and then walk away. It's to give you the tools to make, so you can make the best decision about your body. Mm -hmm. No, I think, yeah, these are really important things to look for when it comes to a provider. Um, And just to wrap it up, um, what can South Asians do to improve access and reduce stigma to birth control? Sure. Um, I think the number one thing is to start talking about it. You know, we should start talking about sexual health. We should start talking about periods. Talk to your kids about periods before they have their first one so they know what to expect. You shouldn't rely on the school system to hand out pads and tampons to expose your kids. There's no one that your child is going to feel feel more comfortable with than you, especially when they're young and impressionable. Right. Make, make it an inclusive home. Talk about birth control. It doesn't mean that your kid is going to go on birth control, but they need to know that you're there for them and that you're willing to listen. I think it's also just as important to include sons and include fathers in these conversations. You know, this isn't just a female issue. I know I say that I want to go into women's health and, you know, all of that, but not everybody who menstruates identifies as female. So we should involve every single person in the family into these conversations. Girls shouldn't be shamed or banned from activities just because they're on their periods. We're not any less weak because we bleed once a month, you know, Um, society wise. I think it would be great if more places across South Asia and even across the U.S., have menstrual health products like pads or tampons freely available in public restrooms. So many people go to public restrooms to find, you know, these products because like period poverty, like I mentioned before, they don't really have access to them otherwise. And that doesn't mean that they should be having unsafe periods where they get infections. Right. These were really important points. And I think that you've really summed it up all really well about like the different aspects um, that come with reproductive health, taking care of reproductive health, period poverty, PCOS. We covered a lot of this podcast. So thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Thank um, you so much for having me. Yeah, no. um, And so to the audience, thank you for tuning in to our um, episode of Brown Women Health. And Feel free to keep up with us on Instagram, Twitter, and learn more about this topic. We're going to have a couple of infographics up 
um, as well as talk a little bit more about this later in the fall as well. So thank you so much, Melody, for being on our show again. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here.